1: I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues.
0: We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture.
1: Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens.
0: Bob Ostertag published his book, Sex, Science, Self, A Social History of Estrogen, Testosterone and Identity, in 2016. At the time, few people took much notice. Six years later, however, this book is causing a stir among gender-critical circles and provoking considerable thought and discussion. Today, Bob Ostertag expands on the book, which explores the way pharmaceutical companies have been marketing testosterone as the essence of manhood and estrogen as the essence of womanhood. Pioneering physicians have also been looking long and hard for a condition, even if they have to fabricate one for which these hormones would offer a solution. Bob's work raises important questions about the beliefs people hold about these substances and what those substances mean for their personal identity. And of course, these beliefs are changing rapidly as society expands its understanding of gender identity, for better or worse. Bob also reminds us that no aspect of history should be off-limits for exploration. Studying the history of these hormones, in and of itself, can be really upsetting to people who hold strong beliefs about them. Nevertheless, knowing the history is important for anyone curious about the intersection between medicine and identity. Bob's writing style is powerful, witty, and gripping. And as you'll see, he's a very thoughtful and cautious conversationalist. Towards the end of the discussion, Bob also raises some challenges to me and Stella about our show, and how some of our guests frame the biological or organic determinants of sexuality and identity. This conversation gave us much to think about, and we'll continue exploring these ideas in subsequent episodes. So, without further delay, here's our discussion with Bob Ostertag. Hi there, Sasha. Hi, Stella. So... Today's guest is really great because we have Bob tag on who's written this book in 2016 that started uh, coming into my world when it was recommended by Lisa Cullen Davis, who of course interviewed you recently in her Substack, Bob. So we're so happy to have you here. And your book, as I read it, I, I mean, I think I told Stella, how have we not heard of this book much earlier? Because... What I took away from this book is that there's been a long history of pioneering doctors and physicians and psychiatrists and and different people in the medical industry trying to find a way to use hormones and looking up, looking for and digging up or making up conditions for which they can experiment with these drugs because they are pretty interesting and they're quite elusive so can, can you tell us a little bit about uh what is the history of these substances i know that's a big question what is what is what do you say in your book in less than 17 hours <laughs> sum it all up <laughs>
2: well in 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 the broadest possible strokes Um, These substances seem to have excited the medical imagination like no other. And the the history is a series of sort of crusades um, led by, you know, crusading doctors and backed by uh, pharmaceutical companies that had enormous uh, financial interests in which Extraordinary claims were made about these substances and extraordinary medical practices were um, carried out. And then the whole paradigm crashed and burned with all kinds of recrimination, regret, and um, and pain. And this has gone on, you know, again and again for, um, you know, a hundred years now.
0: You also talk in your book about how um, as you as part of the LGBT community, you met so many friends and loved ones who are using these drugs and, and transitioning, you know, medically transitioning. And you came to discover that n- nobody really knew much about the drugs themselves or their use in history. So I'm wondering if you can explain, like through the process of doing your research and writing this book, Clearly, it it seems to have become really important to you that we understand the history of medications and drugs. Why is it so important to understand the history of a a substance if we're going to promote it in society?
2: Yeah, well, estrogen and testosterone have a long... um, They're freighted with meaning um, that isn't... um, isn't necessarily purely scientific, or we could say it's scientific, but science itself is freighted with with meanings that um, that have a history. This idea that that gender is chemical, and that there's a chemical essence to men and women, or a chemical essence to masculinity and femininity. It's not an intuitive thing. I mean, it, it didn't fall from the sky fully formed as a timeless um, thing without history. Uh, surely, I thought, it, th- th- there's a, a path that was followed. There's an A, B, C, D. Uh, we went from some place to another place to another place to another place to somehow arrive at this idea that there's a chemical essence to um, sex or gender. And what might that history be? I was fascinated. I was fascinated. And this idea that a product manufactured by a large transnational corporation for for, for profit can Mm -hmm. cause a person to transition from male to female, that's also not a very intuitive idea. <laughs> and uh yeah
1: on uh, further than that, the idea that your your true self could be a chemical, if you follow me, could be chemically yeah. induced almost i is, is is such an extraordinary concept
2: yes, it's an extraordinary concept and and um these are concepts that we um have become so woven into our cultural and intellectual fabric that we forget that even the notion that you know we, we use the word transition, we use yeah the, the the idea that this this what these substances do cause one to transition from one to another gender. Um I notice on your podcast you use the term transi- transition without um questioning the the meaning.
1: That's a very good point. I, I would like to bring up that point. It's almost like you're saying it reminds me of transubstantiation in the Catholic um kind of concept. <laughs> You know, you you convert the bread into, you know what I mean, into whatever, the holy, divine and transition is is, what you're kind of resting on here is that we're just almost mindlessly using the word transition and you're going, really? Transition? Am I right in thinking that?
2: Yes, yes, exactly, exactly I so I think a lot about technology and culture and my I have other books about technology and culture and and um, i I insist that all technology is is open to question and um, You know, these days with climate change and everything else, um, you know, technology is open to question. There can't be some part of technology that is assigned a particular meaning, and then no one's allowed to question that meaning. So, so um, to say that taking a hormone causes one to transition gender is to subscribe to a particular meaning of that technology and i and i don't think we should take that as given
0: so this is a great point do you have um a preferred interpretation of that process of taking hormones for example or are you kind of just being inquisitive and saying hmm i wonder why we've assigned meaning to that like do you have a preferred way of understanding this
2: no very much the second um um Yeah, and and I try to approach history that way. Um, There's nothing... uh, Yeah, I'm more curious about the changes than arguing which version of understanding was right or which one was wrong. I'm more curious about calling Mm -hmm. attention to the fact that it changed and that... Mm -hmm. um, that that should inform our thinking. So if there's been, you know, six different meanings attached to something, hormones or something else for uh, over a hundred years, um, I'm less concerned about which one was right. And I'm more concerned about knowing that there've been six different ones or seven or 10 or three or whatever. And, um, because that that can inform us about and more than anything, it, it it gives us, I think, some needed humility about our beliefs. I mean, maybe we're living at the time where, you know, we are all getting it right for the first time ever, and thank goodness. But I, you know, on what grounds do we do we uh believe that about ourselves?
0: Bob, can you give a couple of examples from your book about the way the meaning of these substances or the way they impact the body has changed? Because I think this this is making sense to me as someone who's read it. But I'd love for our audience to kind of get a glimpse of like, what are some examples of, of how this has evolved in the medical industry or in kind of our cultural understanding of male, female hormones, all that stuff?
2: So... um in the early days of endocrinology, which was in the late 19th century, that was when chemistry, the, the practices and and capabilities of chemistry, developed to the point that we could look into the component parts of blood. So before that, the 19th century was really nerves. Um, we understood nerves. We thought. Nerves really regulated physiology and behavior and development and everything. That's why 19th century was all about nervous disorders. And um, so many uh, human ailments were understood to be nervous disorders. So then at the end of the 19th century, um, we acquired the ability to break down the component parts of blood sufficiently to notice that there was something else going on, that in addition to this hardwired system of nerves, that there was a broadcast system as well, that there were things that circulated through blood, and somehow they regulated, um, they played a role in physiology and behavior and so um, when that was realized that the question was well where do those things come from and the most obvious place was testicles because they're hanging right out there available for doctors to examine and there had been thousands of years of what we might say would be medical experiments though they weren't thought of that because The history of male castration is long and extensive, both with animals and with humans. So it was um, understood that if you uh, cut off somebody's testicles, that there would be behavioral and physiological consequences. So people thought, okay, there must be something that um, comes out of testicles and it regulates all this, and and um, and that's what makes men men. And that idea that um, there was this thing that came out of testicles that made men men. Um, that idea has continued to inform um, the thinking and the. Um, practices around um testosterone um our understanding of endocrinology back then was very simple very simple it was thought that there were a very few hormones that there was uh, one one hormone per gland that there were very few glands and that there was a deficiency disease and a um a hyperactive disease associated with each one. And um, where am I going this? Well, well, fast forward to today. So how would I say it? The um, men take testosterone now. Women take testosterone now. All kinds of people take testosterone. We have decided that testo- that what happens when... You take testosterone as you become male or more male, or um, but testosterone does all kinds of things. You know, if a man takes testosterone, his testicles shrink and his breasts grow, and he gets acne. And um, none of those are things that we particularly think of as male. Um, so, if we begin with the idea. That testosterone is the chemical essence of manhood and masculinity, then the fact that your balls shrink and your breasts grow and you get acne are unexpected side effects that have to sort of be managed and explained away. But if you just start, if you don't begin with the idea that testosterone is masculine, if you just begin with the idea that it's a growth hormone um, among many others, then you don't have to divide. The consequences of it between the expected consequences and the unexpected consequences and the unexpected side effects, and then you keep you follow that thread long enough, and it starts to be, um, it flips, and so uh, you start to think that what's masculine is what's associated with testosterone. Because that's the chemical essence of manhood, so therefore we the things we think of as manly become the things that testosterone does. Um, and then you really get arrive at sort of a chemical definition of of manhood or womanhood or masculinity or femininity, and of course, all of that is shaped you know profoundly by the profit motive, because all of that's done for money. All of that, all of that is done for money. You know, one of the things that I really want hoped to um, people to take from my book was how much of what is said about these substances in the queer community today is taken nearly verbatim out of corporate advertising, that's gone on for decades, um, selling, uh, marketing and selling the idea that um, these substances are re- represent masculinity and femininity. And again, as a historian, I'm, I'm not trying to say one of these things is right or one of these things is wrong. Just because something's... Um, been repeated over and over in advertising by transnational corporations. That doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. But if you're somebody who's who needs to assess the meaning of that for decisions that you're going to make in your life that are going to be of profound consequence, you should at least know, well, that's... <laughs> That's corporate advertising coffee, and um
1: and you know, know you' you're yeah, no, it's very interesting, um you know the way you're saying like effectively we've 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 singled out testosterone to be this essence of chemical essence of male and estrogen to be the chemical essence of female, and so the pharmaceutical companies have ran with this and made an awful lot of money out of this because we've bottled masculinity and we've bottled femininity, and now we're selling it, um if I'm right, um. Other people would argue, but it is, that testosterone is the essence of male. Like, I know, I hear you about the breasts and it did give me pause for thought. And you said the shrunken balls and the breasts and like, why did we? But I would have thought other people, maybe Carol Hooven, who wrote Testosterone would say, oh, but it is. Testosterone is the definitive essence of, of male. Well,
0: I want to add on to your question, Stella, because I hear where you're going. And I'm I'm also aware that there there are you know, branches of endocrinology that are framing things a little bit differently now. So for example, sometimes females who are not transgender or who are not trying to quote transition to male are given testosterone for various different cascading pathways that it creates in the body that is not seen as like, oh, we're giving you a male hormone. Because I mean, as you describe in your book, every human being, regardless of their sex has both and many more, there are many more sex hormones that we all have. So um, yeah, I'm curious about, uh, you know, it's almost like, I I hope I haven't hijacked your question, Stella, but are you saying that there isn't really um, a difference hormonally between male and female? Are you touching on that, Stella? No, I'm saying that testosterone
1: is the kind of the essence of male, you know, testosterone. But I think I've been bought by the companies. I think I am a product of what Bob is saying, which is basically you've been told that testosterone equals uh, the essence of male and the, 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 the traits that go with testosterone are therefore male. And i, I basically bought the propaganda, I think, is what Bob is, is telling me. But I'm wondering that other people like Carol Hooven, I think, would say, no, oh, testosterone is pretty much the essence of, of male
2: trying to anticipate all these landmines you guys have been doing this for for a long time now so so you 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 your awareness of the lay of the land in terms of where you're going to step on
1: landmines oh,
0: but we step on landmines constantly and we just stopped caring i think yeah. i don't know about you Stella. I, I have to say
1: one thing i would say unless i you can come in on this sasha but I haven't seen our guests be attacked. The only thing is I've seen a few people disagree, but the, it right. hasn't been abusive, the the our guests. I remember Paul Vasey was very worried, and then afterwards he was clearly absolutely thrilled. <laughs> no, I mean our <laughs>
0: listeners our listeners agree with our perspective. Yeah. So
1: yeah.
0: I mean every now and then um activists may try to target our show by writing a mean Google review or something like that. But um, we have not had the experience of our guests having any trouble after the show.
1: The opposite. They've been generally very, very pleased, kind of delighted would Mm -hmm. be like I was expecting kickback. And what I got was extraordinarily well penned kind of thank you. And that's really expanded my mind kind of comments. That's what I've noticed.
2: Okay. Okay. Well, let's dive back in here. So, testosterone was synthesized in the 1930s. So, um, the option of a of a of a woman or a person assigned female at birth or biological female or however we want to refer to this person, um, the option of that person taking testosterone and thus transitioning to male was available since the 1930s. And yet it didn't happen until um, the 1990s. So 60 years went by in which that option was available. And during that time, uh, nobody thought of that. Um, people thought that if you were going to transition from female to male, you needed genital surgery. So um, So there's an example of uh, a changing meaning assigned to uh, hormones. For sixty years, uh, testosterone was available, but there were no people assigned female at birth who thought that taking testosterone without surgery would mean transitioning to
1: male. And is that right for estrogen as well? The, you know what I mean? Was it in the 90s that, yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: your book was really interesting when you talked about the emergence of the trans man. Like, it was this new thing. It's very fascinating. Can you keep talking a little bit about that?
2: Well, um, that was a big shift. Um, um, it was actually um, testo- testosterone, you know, was synthesized in the 30s. Um, supposedly, the first person to take testosterone was Adolf Hitler, actually. It was rushed to him because um, it was synthesized in Germany and, and you know, if they had the chemical essence of manhood, then the first thing you wanted to do was give it to the great leader. Um, and then the next thing they did
1: with it was try to cure male homosexuality. Wait, wait can we go back to Adolf Hitler? You, you, he was the first person who took testosterone, and how did it impact him?
2: Well, we don't know. And and this is, I'm not sure if this is 100% understood, but I'd have to go back and... and uh, see whether this is speculated or 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 known as fact but um there was there was a race to synthesize um testosterone Uh, and, and in fact that race um created the topography of giant pharma was um so so the the race to market estrogen and testosterone was the that was the, the formative period of giant pharma. It's changed a little bit now with biotech now we have some newer companies who have you know are working in different different kinds of technologies so with biotech the 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 um, topography of, of giant pharmaceutical corporate uh, corporations in the world has changed but for a long time um, you know the giant pharmaceutical companies were the ones who ballooned up to scale in the rush to um, market estrogen and testosterone. Testosterone was a funny thing because it was a a miracle cure without a disease. Uh, Usually, you know, in medicine, um, you you start out with a disease and then you look for a, a, a medicine that can be used. To treat the disease. With with hormones, it was the opposite. Um, To go back to what we were saying before, once we understood that there were hormones or chemicals in blood that regulated physiology and behavior, then we thought, well, where are these? And then the obvious place to think was in the testicles since they were so available and because of this long history of of, um, castration. And so there was this rush to isolate what came out of the testicles. And that's a whole story in and of itself, because how would you know when you got it? And um, how would you know when you had got the good stuff? And uh, that's a whole crazy story about how they, how they decided who was going to win the prize. But um, once they had it, um, they didn't know what it would be good for. They were sure it would be good for a lot because this was supposed to be the chemical essence of manhood. And of course, men are the most important thing in the world. And so if you have something that's the chemical essence of manhood, then you have the most important thing in the world. And who knew what that might be good for, but the... the, the, it was going to be good for a whole bunch. And so you were going to make money. You were going to make bank. Whoever could synthesize testosterone was going to be rolling in dough. And then they sent. then they isolated it. And then they, um, uh, then they synthesized it and they couldn't find anything. It was good for, they kept trying one thing after another. And it, and basically it, it went on the shelf. They couldn't, um, went on the shelf for decades. It was, uh, big um, surprise but at, after Hitler got it the first thing they tried to do was cure male homosexuality they had this idea that um, male homosexuality was a deficiency disease the, testi- te- the testicles were not producing enough of this stuff and so um, we would cure male homosexuality by by giving it to male homosexuals that didn't work so well um, in fact you know there's gay men today who um, use testosterone as a sexual stimulant, and nobody would think that you were going to make a gay man less likely to go around having sex with other gay men by giving them testosterone. But that was that was the first um, use, and um, and then there was a whole period where they tried to cure male homosexuality by transplanting normal testicles into the scrotums of gay men. That was another whole chapter in this. When you step back and look, there, there, there was a whole chapter where, um, you know, the, the renowned surgeons and doctors, world famous, were trying to rejuvenate old men by transplanting monkey testicles into their scrotums. This became such that uh, France and England had to pass legislation to conserve the monkey supply in their African colonies. Um, A a hospital in Chicago built a monkey house on its roof to house its monkeys. Um, There was a period where... um, Oh, and and at San Quentin Prison, just north of San Francisco, there was... um, a series of um, surgeries where they would transplant the testicles from normal, manly prisoners into the scrotums of homosexual prisoners to try to cure them. Um, There was a whole period of giving men vasectomies as a way to either cure homosexuality or rejuvenate um, the men. There's just a long history of these um, practices also you know with ovaries and estrogen um, there was a period where in Europe and the United States and this is around the end of the 19th century early 20th century um, women sought uh, to have their ovaries removed as a as a treatment for hysteria and um, thousands of women had their ovaries removed um, and women would go from doctor to doctor um, begging for the procedure.
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show and we're grateful to Rhyme and Jenspect for supporting us.
1: RIME, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org to learn more.
0: And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become
1: a patron, You'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our
0: listener community. Now back to the show. And I I remember that that there was even a framing that this was like a feminist cause, and that if a doctor was not willing to remove the ovaries from a woman, he was uh, kind of discriminating against them. Like, I I find it really interesting the way medical procedures can be seen as part of like civil rights issues which of course we see that happening now in the gender world can you just comment on that aspect of like how because this this is a theme throughout the book right you talked about how homosexuality uh people were campaigning to be taken out of the dsm and to keep drugs off of our bodies and then of course in the trans movement you see quite the opposite and then when it comes to women's reproductive health or women's health you see moments in time where certain procedures were seen as this empowering thing I'm sure we could talk also not that I know much about the history but like of birth control and all kinds of different medications how they become part of a an activist narrative like can you just maybe share examples of that or comment on that at all
1: well, sh-
2: Sure um In the United States, the first what now we would call LGBT rights groups were started in the 1950s. And um, they did their thing for a decade and a half, and then the Stonewall Riot is sort of generally seen as the transition from that period to the gay liberation period. So... um, if, uh, sh- historians as, shorthands, as shorthand refer to the homophile era and the gay liberation era. So these organizations of the 50s and 60s w- w- are are thought of and at the time sometimes referred to themselves as homophile organizations. And the, these organizations um, would to some extent, collaborate with psychiatrists and doctors. They were interested in what psychiatrists and doctors had to say about homosexuality and what we would now call gender identity and so forth. They were they were looking around to um, make contact and collaborate with the medical people they viewed as the least awful, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, so they they th- these were sort of um, what we would now say as LGBT activists. They didn't call themselves that that but then back that back then, um, but they were, um, and they had all, of course, been told that they were sick and that this was an illness and so forth. Um, this is the fifties and sixties, so. Um, They sought collaboration and exchange with doctors who they considered the least awful of the bunch. Now, gay liberation came along, and um, the fundamental break between the homophile era and the gay liberation era was that the gay liberation groups didn't want to talk to doctors at all, period. Full stop, end of story, not interested. We're not sick. There's nothing wrong with us. The only experts in homosexuality is homosexuals. Thank you very much. And the only thing um, that we want from doctors is to be left alone. And uh, gender non-conforming kids don't need a doctor. They need a bus ticket to San Francisco a nice bowl of soup when they get there and a place to stay until they find a job or, or whatever. So that was, um, that was sort of what defined gay liberation. That was the break that the, the liberation was, we were not going to view ourselves as sick anymore. And, Of course, there's many – the gay liberation was, like any social movement, embedded in the cultural fabric in which it existed. So gay liberation looked um, largely for its inspiration to women's liberation, Um, what we now think of as second wave um, women's liberation, which was – um, to a surprisingly, large degree, um, for, had its formative moment in questioning the amount of estrogen that women were taking. And um, some of the early, you know consciousness-raising feminist rap groups of the late '60s and early '70s were precisely around um, women getting together and realizing how much estrogen they were taking, women realizing they thought they were the only woman who was taking that much estrogen and then realizing everybody else was and um, and and coming to the conclusion that um, the medical profession was you know uh, medicalizing women's bodies in in a way that was, inappropriate and oppressive and um, was feeding into the bottom lines of, of, of corporations that were making a lot of money and, and was not doing any good and actually a lot of harm.
0: Sorry. What were these women supposedly taking estrogen for?
2: Well, uh, first and foremost, the pill. And then also, um, uh uh asked, you know uh for menopause and then for uh, other reasons. And um and then it, it was discovered that uh there hadn't really been safety trials done that um the sorts of safety trials that would one would one would normally expect had not been done and there was a whole um you know the first zap of uh of a um, congressional or Senate hearing was done around this. And also remember that this was a time, the whole tenor of the, of the sixties you know, hippies were going back to the land. African-Americans weren't straightening their hair anymore. They were growing great big froze. Uh, you know, women were taking off their bras, deciding not to wear makeup and, um, you know, not, Shaving their legs. There was a whole, um, the the uh, the turn away from medicalizing um, social issues was hardly confined to the gay liberation movement. It was everywhere at the time. In the in the same sense that the turn towards medicalization in the queer world now is hardly. You know, an isolated case. I mean, just look at the number of people who took prescription drugs in 1969 when the Stonewall riot happened, compared to how many people take prescription drugs today. This is not, um, you know, so many of the issues that we talk about when we talk about transgender issues today. Um, they're they're not confined. To the transgender world, they're so reflective of of the problems we have in the world today. I mean, look at the tenor of political debate everywhere—not just around gender. You know, we the the tenor of political debate is so out of control. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I talked a lot of time. <laughs>
1: No, it's very, very interesting. In in the sixties there was the psychedelic drugs and they were really into the idea of mind expansion and the doors of perception and Aldous Huxley and things like that. And you know, I, I really bought into that as a teenager. I really did. And you know, honestly, I think it did add something to my mind when I took psychedelics. I, 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 I do, I, I do think yeah. it did.
2: Do you? Yes, I I had the same experience. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't say it didn't. Uh, it did, it definitely did, and uh, I, I am, my brain is wider as a result, <laughs> on some level. So then I kind of think, uh, we maybe had nowhere, m- m- really, uh, you know, LSD, MDMA. We had kind of trawled that world of mind expansion through psychedelic drugs, and so now it, it occurred to me through reading your work, it occurred to me. So now we're expanding our identities through, through pharmaceutical hormones as opposed to expanding our minds through psychedelic drugs. This is just something I wanted to ask you. Did you think that is what we're doing on some level?
2: I have thought about that, yes. I have thought about that. And I have thought about the fact that um, to exert, to some extent, I think my experiments with psychedelic drugs as a youth, um, I didn't use the term identity back then. Um, but if you had asked me, is that shaping who you are? I probably would have said yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think we were very, very lucky that, um, Things like LSD turned out to not have long-term health um, repercussions. That's certainly a difference between testosterone, for example, and LSD. Yeah. When I was a kid, I would I I was interested in taking mind-altering substances. When I was a kid, and I took whatever ones were available in my little town, and very fortunate that I came out of that um, in one piece.
1: And when you look at the you word, mind, with... yeah, when you look at the word mind altering, what is the mind anyway? And it's almost like the the, the word of the era now is identity. So it's identity altering.
0: Yeah, this makes me think about the difference between an experiential thing versus a visual thing, right? Because I think what people are more prone to do now, when it comes to their pharmaceutical interests is changing the way they appear whether it's in the gender realm right or even in cosmetic surgery or all of the different aesthetic changes people can make to themselves whereas the types of psychedelics that you guys are talking about changes your experience changes the way you perceive the world changes your um (laughs) sensory experience so it makes me really interested in like how do the introduction of severely visual mediums like social media and Instagram and like photo sharing and that changes the way we think about what it means to to have an expansive experience. Now it's like the expansive experience is modifying your body uh, in a way that changes how people perceive you, which is so much about gender medicine, right? Because I mean, we can talk about how there is really no chemical essence to male or female. But at the end of the day, we 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 know that we interact with people differently if we see them as a man or see them as a woman. And so I think what people are trying to do with all of these hormonal interventions is change the way they are perceived by others. So it's like a a manipulation of perception, which is so different from manipulating your personal experience using a drug that like transports you psychologically you know so i I think that's so interesting
2: well let's let, let, let's get away from the psychedelic drugs i think that's <laughs> it's taking us a little, a, bit, <laughs> okay. a bit a bit a bit far afield but um
0: as as psychedelic drugs uh. do. <laughs>
2: But uh, it's certainly one thing that has struck me. As we we were speaking before, um, there were decades where um, transitioning from uh, male to female or or vice versa was seen as only being accomplished through genital surgery. And then um, this idea appeared and became widely accepted that you could could transition without surgery um, with hormones. And um, so why did that happen when it happened, when the hormones had been available for so long? And that exact same choice could have been exercised for decades and was not. And so that, that's a question that you can't answer definitively, of course, but you can throw out ideas. And certainly one of them, um, to me, is that, the, the, that that idea of hormonally transitioning appeared almost exactly at the time the word selfie appeared. And um, so how you look, with your clothes on, became, you know, more important than it had ever been because we were sharing pictures in social media. And so, um, you know, before that time, the idea that that you could, you know, grow some facial hair and rearrange your muscle mass but not alter your genitals was, you know... Un- was not, um, you know, was seen as unsatisfactory. Um, that was certain. It's also, you know, the, um, that idea of chemically transitioning um, also uh, corresponded with the, the market share of testosterone and estrogen going, uh, going through the roof Mm -hmm. and you know that's another thing that um, it's not this isn't confined to just um, transgender or queer or LGBTQ um, communities Uh, our culture is so awash in testosterone and estrogen um, right now Uh, police take testosterone and and in fact I, I suspect that one of the things that fueling all this police violence is 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 testosterone roid rage oh yeah Um, because um because cops are loaded up on testosterone um it's become common if you're a guy and you go to business school and you get your mba and you take some testosterone so that when you go into the boardroom to make your presentation you know you look a little bit better um uh, women take estrogen for all kinds of reasons for rejuvenating for wrinkles for for you name it it's um, it, athletes take uh, testosterone for all kinds of purposes and knockoffs of, of testosterone so um yeah it's it's um it's everywhere it's not it's um, Certainly not. It. I like the term M to M and F to F, like lowercase M to uppercase M. You know, like man to man. You
0: know, (laughs) um, turbocharged.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to be. It's hard to be the man that you're supposed to be these days without testosterone. And it's so. We're all. All of our identities are becoming chemically constructed, not just trans people, all of us.
1: Did you trace it? I I heard you mention the 1990s as when they picked up on, let's use these hormones that have been around for decades and we will market them so that they, they effectively they contain the essence of man and the essence of woman. Is it the 1990s, and was there a particular marketing genius who who decided this, or is it more nebulous than that? Oh, this was marketed like
2: this from the very beginning. Um, but what happened, I'd have to look up the exact date, but around the 1990s was when, at least in the United States, when um, the government approved direct-to-consumer television advertising for prescription drugs. And that was a sea change. Um, it, so, before then, you couldn't um, advertise prescription drugs. And now you could advertise prescription drugs on late night TV. And so, if you were a, a, a drug company and you were thinking, you know, which of our products would benefit from late night television advertising? Well, testosterone and estrogen, you know, you can show the pictures of those muscles and, you know, the beautiful skin and stuff. So a a huge amount um, of money went into marketing those drugs. There had been um, uh, huge amounts of money marketing those drugs all along. And, um, you know, those are extremely profitable um, drugs. And, of course, now... With the low T um, campaigns, marketing campaigns, um, I, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, w- it might be fun to do. We could, if we had time in this podcast, we could go on to a, a medical website and and I could take the is it low T questionnaire, and I have no quiz.
0: Doubt. I have yeah, yeah.
2: No the the answer that would pop out at the end of all the questions is that I have low T and I need to take. This.
0: You know, it's very much like the MI trans quizzes that young people take. But to be fair, I mean, I I listened to a couple of podcasts by medical doctors. And I heard one recently that made me think about your book, actually, because this was a physician who was talking about the kind of testosterone clinics that have popped up all over the place and how unethical they are and how they just prescribe so much testosterone to so many people without thinking about whether it's needed or contraindications. So it seems that even within the field of endocrinology and selling testosterone, there there's a kind of spectrum of like, are, are is this an ethical way of taking someone's blood work and figuring out if they have deficiencies that maybe impact certain concrete things, you know, and and I could just be very misinformed about it. But hearing this physician talk about it made me realize that there's more than just a kind of either or scenario, right? Either someone prescribes testosterone, and it's totally unethical, or um, you know they don't touch it with a ten foot pole. So, have you discovered through your research that there is actually controversy within the field of medicine about how these hormones are talked about, marketed, advertised, and prescribed?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. There's a, I think there's a whole project out of um, UC Berkeley trying to debunk the whole low testosterone thing. There, there, there is a whole. Uh, project underway now, not dissimilar to um, the project of Genspect, for example, um, questioning um, the marketing and um, the way that testosterone is being prescribed for men. Yes, no, absolutely. That's a
1: And it occurs to me not massively dissimilar to the the kind of backlash about the chemical imbalance in the brain. If you follow me, that like people say, "Oh, it's just a chemical imbalance in the brain," and other people are saying, "Well, who said that?" And you know what I mean? Where's the evidence?
0: Yeah, that that happened with depression recently. There was a big kind of expose that 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 theory is not quite Mm -hmm. accurate.
1: Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not at all clear. It And actually, you know, for decades, every now and then the, um, the, the pharmaceutical industry has attempted to market this idea that, um, you know, there's a male equivalent of menopause and that at a certain point, um, you know, men need to take testosterone replacement therapy and, um, that seems to be you know catching on now to a degree that it the the previous um campaigns were were um less successful at actually i'm thinking i would like to raise a couple of things um you know i listened to a lot of your podcasts um i sort of binge listened to gender a wider lens over i we had two days of driving a car so i listened Um, A lot. And there were a couple of things that I wanted to point out. And one is I want to really flag that if there is a um, somatic or biological cause of homosexuality or uh, gender dysphoria or transgenderism or any of that, it has not been found. And that's um, something I disagree with some of your previous um, guests about. <clears throat> um, I highly recommend you have Rebecca Jordan Young on your show. Um, her book, Debunking All the Claims about, uh, about this, is, I think, absolutely um, central. And the other... Thing I wanted to mention sort of listening to the, the collection of your work was um, you've interviewed quite a few medical professionals who um, talk in a in a talk in a very particular way about trans activists and <clears throat> I just wanted to note that as far as I know trans activists don't write prescriptions for drugs and they don't open clinics and they don't um, fund. I mean, um, you can almost get this impression that, you know, the medical profession is this weak, underfunded, Institution with no power, no power getting beat up on by trans activists, and that's not my understanding of the medical (laughs) uh, uh profession. Um, I think the you know where we're at in all this raises some pretty deep questions about um medical what we think of as the medical profession what we think of as science
1: that's a very good point i think um you know there there's activists for many many different things and it's not as if the activists had the prescription pads or or ran the clinics they took over them on some level because of perhaps a structural issue within these clinics that were kind of um, in debt to, to money, in debt to m- maybe m- making profits and that's shaped, is, is that what you're saying? There, there was a rot that kind of got um, capitalized on.
2: I'm just saying that um, there's a narrative uh, uh, that seems to place a lot of, I don't know, is the word blame or something for the current situation on, on activists. And, um, and, you know, this the series of, of the, the, what I talked about earlier, this, this series of paradigms, medical paradigms about how to use estrogen and testosterone that have gone on now for hundreds of years. For 100 years where um, a new medical paradigm comes into view, extraordinary claims are made about, you know, extraordinary uses of testosterone or estrogen. Um, doctors start crusading they travel around the country they give lectures they talk about how mm-hmm. you know this amazing thing can happen prescriptions start getting written surgeries start getting done then the whole thing collapses and everybody yells at each other and everybody's mad and people are hurt mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. doctors become medical laughing stocks and their careers are ruined and then it goes on and we ha- it happens all over again that's yeah that's happened yeah. numerous times and trans activists weren't there at <laughs> all those other times to make all of that happen. That was generally fueled by the medical community itself and and by the pharmaceutical corporations. So yeah.
0: Mm. I I agree with you and I think you're raising a really good point my observation from this field is that we now have a kind of confluence of doctors who also are activists in their perspective. So that that is kind of like the, the zealot doctor that you described who really pushed this particular philosophy or this idea or this drug forward, of course, with the backing of huge companies and pharmaceutical industry. So that's one part of it. So I think that parallels what you're describing, but I also think there's there's a real um, tension between kind of patient led consumer led medicine which i think has a very important place and i think it's an important antidote to the kind of doctor standing on high telling a person what's wrong with them so i, I completely value the move towards this kind of patient centered patient led medicine but i also think it can cause some ethical dilemmas for doctors who maybe are are really earnestly trying to do the right thing Because there's a great deal of pressure to uh, kind of let the patient lead, you know, in the same way that this was a benefit for the gay liberation movement in so far as people were able to say, I don't need a doctor to tell me if I'm healthy or not. Right? That's a positive thing. And then when it comes to you know, issues that involve medical prescriptions, if you have that same attitude, you could end up with something that happened, for example, in like the opioid epidemic, where it was corrupt pharmaceutical practices combined with patient demand. So I just think it's a very messy, complicated thing. And it's not always very clear where the blame lies really on any of this.
2: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely agree. Absolutely. No, we're, 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 Exactly on the same page. Exactly on the same page. Yeah,
0: I'm. I'm glad you raised that, Bob. It was really fascinating to have you on, and we're very grateful for your your book. And we hope a lot of our listeners will check it out. I know I've been recommending it left and right. Um, and is there anything uh, you'd like to say, just in terms of you know, before we got on the call, you said. When I first wrote this book, it didn't get much attention at all. And then it's been picked up more recently. So can you just tell us a little bit about that trajectory, and then we'll we'll let you go.
2: Yeah, it's it's been curious to me. So I, I worked on the book. I would have been working on the book in um, 2012, 2013, 2014. So about, about 10 years ago. And
1: mm-hmm.
2: like we said, I, I had friends, people close to me taking uh, hormones, and I would say, you know, what is that stuff? Uh, you know, who owns that? Who makes money when you buy that? Um, what are the ups and downs and the side effects and the, and uh, this idea that you can take that and change your gender? Where did that come from? And people didn't know. People didn't know. And doctors didn't know. I'm, I'm it's in, it's impressive to me how doctors who are involved in clinical practice don't have time to actually um think about the history <laughs> of 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 you know they're all caught up in like do I prescribe this much or that much they're not they're not thinking about the larger philosophical and history anyway so I wrote the book and um and it um it fell into a void of silence. It got very little attention, and, and that was fine with me. I, I you know, I do a lot of things. I make music, I make movies, I write books, and I, um, I like making things. I'm not so good at promoting them, and I just sort of like to leave breadcrumbs along the trail, and hopefully some point along the line, somebody will stumble upon the, the breadcrumbs. And uh, also the book was published on a university press, and I realized that, you know, they were all set up so that if I was teaching in a gender studies department and going to academic conferences on gender studies and so forth, that, you know, they would be there to support, you know, with the book. But I, that's not me, and I um, don't teach gender studies, and I don't go to academic conferences. and do a lot of other things. So the book just kind of fell flat. And, um, of course, now we have, you know, bestsellers uh, addressing very similar um, topics. And so it's um, it's been interesting to see the renewed interest in the book. And it's been something of a puzzle for me to contemplate now that I'm being, um, now that I'm on this podcast and on Lisa Helen David's podcast, there's some other um, podcasts and webinars in, in the works. And it's a curious position because here I am with a book that's 10 years old landing in uh, the middle of a debate that's at a very different stage than it was when I wrote the book. And, um, <clears throat> and of course, the decibel level in this debate is very high. And um, so uh, I, I really want to have my contribution to be this history uh, there's been you know 10 years of of profound experience since i wrote the book 10 years of 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 people like yourselves um you know working in this field so um uh, but the history hasn't changed the history hasn't changed and um One, when when you look at the book from a bird's eye view, you could say, so, so I don't think history gives you clean and neat, tidy lessons about do this and don't do that, or this was wrong and this was right. That's not what history does. So... Um, Nobody will be able to read my book and get the answer of should they take testosterone or estrogen or should they not. That's not the kind of thing um, that history can tell you. But what history can tell you is, you know, where things have gone wrong before and um, how our beliefs have changed. So the the book is really the story of what people have believed about these substances, how people have acted on those beliefs, and how those beliefs have changed over time. And they've changed deeply. So one problem with the book is that just to tell the story, can be upsetting or unsettling to people who have a deeply held belief about these substances and particularly if you have engaged with these substances in a way that you feel like you feel like your sense of self and your sense of personhood is deeply caught up in your Set of beliefs about these substances, then you can perceive any questioning of those set of beliefs as an assault on your personhood. Yet you can't tell the history without casting doubt you, that, that there's a chance that the current set of beliefs we have now are going to prove as transitory as all the previous sets of beliefs. So how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile respect for the personal choices that people have made with insistence that history can be told?
1: Mm
2: -hmm. that we can't just declare certain parts of history as off-limits because, um, you know, they're challenging to us. So to me, that that was the core issue that I was left with at, at the end of the book. And I think that issue is not going away. That's only going to become much bigger. The kinds of choices that medical technology is going to offer us about altering ourselves in ways that are deep enough that they um, affect our sense of self in a deep way, this is only going to this is only going to get more, and so um uh, how to maintain the space to discuss history and all the previous, um, you know, catastrophes and, um, you know, deeply held and cherished beliefs that went up in flames. Um, Yeah, this is...
0: I think your book really just does, it puts it in a historical perspective. And it does make us wonder about the beliefs we have now and whether they will change. So we're we're really grateful. It's a fantastic read. And we want to thank you again for for joining us on Gender, A Wider Lens.
1: Okay. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll
1: have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash
0: widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.